This edition of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Barbara Bush Foundation Adult Literacy X Prize. Learn more by visiting the following website, adultliteracy.xprize.org. Oftentimes, EdSurge likes to address what educators love about EdTech products, why they choose to make certain purchases, how they use tools in the classroom, why certain products cause them to sing from the mountaintops. But what about when schools don't renew a license on a tool? I mean, what causes schools to decide to switch to something else and bid a fond farewell to a tool that they used to know? Isn't that a, isn't that a song, Mary Jo? I mean, probably. Okay, I'll be honest. It's one of my favorite songs. But it also happens to be the topic of our podcast deep dive today. We talked to three educators this week from D.C., Texas, and Wisconsin to hear about a tool or a couple of tools that they or their school decided to abandon. And we got a little more information as to what other edtech companies can learn from these edtech breakups. All that, plus the weekly news bits, are coming up right now. I'm Blake Montgomery. And I'm Mary Jamata. Welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast. Let's get started. The education world was all a flutter Friday after Arnie Duncan said he'd step down as U.S. Secretary of Education in December. Duncan cited more time with his family as his official reason for departure, but we're not sure if that's entirely the case. In the official press conference, President Obama praised Duncan for doing, quote, more to bring our education system, sometimes kicking and screaming, into the 21st century than anybody else. Unfortunately, the White House press corps didn't appear to care, as they didn't ask any questions about education following the press conference. And in regards to his successor, just who is John King? Will he be even more of a firebrand than Duncan? During his time as Commissioner of Education in New York, King has aggressively advocated for the Common Core, charter schools, and reforming teacher evaluation systems, all of which he has in common with Arnie Duncan. King is expected to carry on many of Duncan's policy battles, and who knows who's already mad about it. Happy Connected Educator Month. We're willing to bet you didn't know it was happening, and if you're not prepared, don't sweat it. We've put together an incredibly helpful guide to blended learning leadership. Blended learning can be a bit of an educational chameleon, so we've got something for everyone's tastes. Columns on communicating your blended learning goals, an instructional designer's responsibility, how to deal with a failing flipped classroom, or a passionate dispatch from the slums of India. And even better, if you're not really sure what path to take to become a blended learning leader, take this helpful quiz that we put right on our guide. If you want to finish that MOOC you're working on, you better have some friends sign up with you. The folks over at Acumen Plus dug through their data to figure out what factors might influence a group to complete the course, and it turns out that working with people you already know is a big one. Out of the teams that finished one MOOC, 47% were working with friends and 23% with coworkers. Only 8% of the teams who were meeting each other for the first time on the platform completed the course. You can read all of Acumen Plus's tips over at edsurge.com. The Harvard debate team recently squared off against an unexpected opponent, three inmates from Eastern New York Correctional Facility, a maximum security facility up in the Catskills. The three men, previously convicted of violent crimes, are currently enrolled in the Bard Prison Initiative, a degree-granting program that serves inmates. 
And what was their topic for debate? Whether American K-12 schools should admit illegal immigrants. The inmates argued in the negative and won, though they personally believed that schools should open their doors to immigrants. The prison team had its first debate back in March, beating out the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York. Making their victory all the more impressive, the Bard team is not allowed to use the internet while researching their arguments. And now it's time for Kachings. The big new funding this week came from New York City-based Newzella, which has raised a $15 million Series B round. Kleiner Perkins led this round of funding, which brings Newzella's total to $21 million. Newzella takes daily articles from 40-plus news publications and rewrites them at five different Lexel levels. The company's co-founder and CEO, Matthew Gross, told Edsurge that Newzella will use the money to add better search tools for content and to expand its team from 60 to around 100. Arizona-based CampusLogic has also raised a $7.5 million Series A round, led by Continental Investors. CampusLogic offers a mobile, cloud-based tool that helps students and administrators in more than 30 universities navigate the financial aid process. Congratulations to them and to all the other companies that raised money this week. Well, that's it for the news bits. We'll be right back with our deep dive after a brief word from our sponsor. We're willing to bet that if you are listening to this podcast, you care about education. Educating kids matters. But here at EdSurge, we care about educating adults too, particularly when they lack some of the skills that many of us learned in elementary school. Know who else cares about adult learning? Cares so much that they are offering a $7 million bonus for doing it right? The Barbara Bush Foundation Adult Literacy X Prize presented by Dollar General Literacy Foundation. The foundations are running an XPRIZE competition for teams to develop mobile software to help low-literate adults increase their reading skills. If you want to help the 36 million adults who read at or below a third grade level and you're into developing mobile apps, here's what you need to do. Put together a team, apply, build your app, and change the world. Go to the website adultliteracy.xprize.org to sign up. There are 36 million adults and their families whose lives you can change for the better. And 7 million isn't too bad either. The registration deadline is December 10th, so sign up now. Now, for this week's deep dive, we decided to do something a little different from our usual fanfare. In the past, we've asked teachers what they look for in EdTech products, what tools were popular at the beginning of this school year, for example, all hearts and stars and rainbows. But for this podcast, we decided to go a little backwards. I've tried Asana and Workflowy and Trello, and I try them and get them to work for me. But if they're not easily, if they don't transcend sort of the barriers with the people that I'm leading then I'm, I'm quick to let the tool go. Let me introduce that first voice. That's Melissa Emler from Wisconsin. I'm Melissa Emler, and I am from southwest Wisconsin, and I work as the director of innovation at our regional service, service agency, CISA 3. Melissa used to be a special education teacher, and as a result, she's played around with a lot of EdTech tools, including Evernote, Asana, and Smart Pens for the Smart Board. Now, like we said before, the theme of today's deep dive is why educators stop using EdTech tools. And when we first approached our collection of teachers and administrators, we thought, 
Oh, it'll have to do with poor user interface or the tool being too confusing to understand, blah, 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 blah. But here's the thing. The results weren't exactly what we were expecting. And in the case of Melissa, choosing to move past something when she was in the classroom was simply because she found something better. Well, there's so many that come to mind, but specifically, I remember about five years ago, I was introduced to the LiveScribe Smart Pen, and that tool has evolved a lot over the past few years, but essentially, I've not needed to use it as much with students because Google has so many additional applications in their Google Apps for Education that I don't necessarily need the Smart Pen to have a test read to a student or to make a talking study guide like I used to. So that tool has definitely evolved. However, I can still see many implications for it on a personal level, um, like taking handwritten notes at a conference still seems a relevant use for that. But essentially in the classroom, my use of the smart pen has really decreased in the past few years, I would say. Another unexpected answer we heard came from Chip Chase, who's currently in an administrative role at a charter school in D.C. So um, I'm Chip Chase, the Director of Library Services and Technology Integration for Capital City Public Charter School, a small pre-K through 12 charter school in Washington, D.C. When it came to Chip and SchoolForce, his school's SIS, or Student Information System, moving away from the tool had less to do with the product itself and more with an unclear vision for what his charter school wanted to do with technology. Um, so one of the biggest tech tools that we're work- moving away from right now as a school is our student information system, um, school force. And I feel like there's a lot of different reasons why we're moving away from that system, but primarily it is an operations piece that it's a large function to maintain. So we're looking for a more streamlined solution um, built upon what we actually need. So we jumped on board with School Force without fully really realizing what we were trying to get into. Um, so there wasn't a clear vision for what we were trying to do with it. Um, and now that we have a better sense of what we're trying to do and how we can streamline our work processes, um, our grade books, those kinds of pieces, now that we've sort of been forced to learn what exactly we don't want and want, um, I feel like there's a better sense for our, what our actual priorities are now. In that sense, the inevitable school product breakup was more related to what Chip, his team, and his teachers realized they wanted later in the year, as he explains. So that was something that our school administrators sort of focused on a bit separate from our student information system. So there was... We always had a separate gradebook from our um, when we jumped to school force three years ago. Uh, so we started in a, a standards-based approach then, um, and really looked at different systems. So the two, our student information system was separate from our our gradebook when we started using our student information system. Okay. So uh, there was kind of a a process of what's this system for, what's that system for and not really a larger picture for how it all works together. Um, that just last year we got a director of student information systems who, like, that's when we realized this is how important this role is to really manage that process. So I think there were a lot of organizational hiccups that we had to work through to really realize our student gradebook is important. 
But hold on a second, companies. There may be factors at schools that you have no control over, but you're not totally off the hook just yet. Going back to Melissa for a second, she's currently in an administrative role in her district in Wisconsin, and she's got a responsibility to bring a teacher effectiveness and evaluation model to the 31 districts that she oversees. But there's a small problem with the tool that they're currently using to support this, and it has to do with FIT. The product in question, some of you have probably heard of it. It's called Teachscape. So the Teachscape software did not and does not really work for our Wisconsin model. And because it doesn't, it's not, a, the software system is not adjusting to the model, a lot of schools are abandoning that software because it doesn't work. Um, so having said that, you know, we've done a lot of work with Teachscape specifically, and I guess my advice to ed tech companies is when an entire state of users say, this isn't working for us, then we have to be adaptable, and you you really need to listen um, to what we need. And they have done a good job listening, except that what we need is going to take longer to build out. And I think there has to be some communication for when educators talk to people about what they need, and there has to be some realistic understanding of how long it will take to get what it is you need. Similar sentiments came into play with the last educator we talked to, who had an extremely impassioned message for companies, one that was born out of a tough relationship that his organization, Kip Austin, had with a particular content product. And when we asked him if a tarnished relationship could be mended, he did concede that there was one big thing that companies could do. So here's Matt Worthington, director of EdTech at Kip Austin, offering a concrete tip that when the relationship is suffered, everything comes down to feedback. We had an instance where there was uh, a company that was saying, you know, your kids have to log in this way. And it promotes our philosophy of learning. And I said, but <laughs> that doesn't help my kids get into your program so that they can actually, like, you're missing the forest for the trees here, you know, and I think that that's an example of, you know, telling a company like, hey, this is not good for my kids. And if that company doesn't respond and says, well, you know, this is our business this is how we do things. Um, it's like, well, you don't have to have our business. And sometimes I remind people like how much money we paid them, you know, because I'm like, this is like tax dollar money. Um, and, and this money comes from families uh, in the area that like are literally paying your bills. And so, you know, when, when I remind companies of that, I say this is nothing against like you, the person. I, I'm sure you're a wonderful person. And, you know, if I lived in the same town with you and we grew up together, you, I probably think you're like an amazing person. But like as a representative of a company, I want to tell your company that like we're paying your bills. So I, I would just make sure that like that companies are being receptive to feedback and not just like hearing it, but actually like internalizing it and then making changes. Speaking of taking feedback well, Matt has a big recommendation in terms of who entrepreneurs can look to as an example of a company who does quick, responsive action. So you Google's a great example of that, oh. right? Even though we don't pay for that, like you look at their change logs, they make major changes nearly every month, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And some people go, oh, is that so awful that like, Google changes stuff so much, and I'm like, no, like, it shows they're listening. Like, a teacher 
in, in a teacher's actual life, when they say, hey, it would be great if I could have this, what they mean is yesterday, not like next year. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, like, companies change stuff, and it's like they'll roll out, like, one or two changes. But, you know, with Google, like, seeing them be so responsive, you know, uh, Jamie Kasip, I asked him a question on Twitter, and he responded to me in five minutes. And he directed me to the proper courses of feedback, but, like, to me that was a um, – just sort of a, a, a token that says like, hey, we're listening, you know, and we are very interested. And in fact, we have a very specific process to sort of get all that feedback in one place and process it, you know. And Melissa agrees with Matt, leaving us with a lasting message that entrepreneurs should take to heart. The technology is only as good as the people using it. And if the people don't get on board with you, it is not, it you need to find something that they can identify with. And it's it's not usually because the tool is difficult to use because I actually don't think any of the tools that I've stopped using are difficult to use. It's just a matter of how people's brains work and process and how teams function. And the tool has to fit into what already happens because the tool is not supposed to be meant to be this long learning curve. It's supposed to be a tool that you can pick up and embrace and move you forward faster. And if that's not happening, then ditch the tool and try something else because there's definitely something that as a team you can embrace. Mm-hmm. A big thanks today to Matt Worthington, Melissa Emler, and Chip Chase for their honest thoughts on the EdSurge podcast. Good luck with all of the new tools you're bringing into your schools and classrooms going forward. And a big thank you as well to Michael Horn, Diane Tavener, and all the other writers who contributed to EdSurge this week. Don't forget to check out that guide to become a better blended learning leader. It's chock full of tips and tricks for anyone who wants to spruce up their blended learning resume. Put that professional pep in your step. And hey, speaking of professional pep, EdSurge is holding two EdTech job fairs in October. Join us either at GSV Labs in Redwood City, California on October 14th or at the NYU Wasserman Center in New York City on October 28th. Be sure to attend if you're looking for a job in the ed tech industry or if you're a company and you want to meet the prospective talent pool, shoot a note to helen at edsurge.com. Spots are limited, so hurry up to reserve your spot. Just come and swim all up in the talent pool. Get your employer feet wet. Send a wave of opportunities out to the ed tech public. Wow, that was a crazy intense collection of water metaphors. Do you have any more, Blake? Uh, I really don't. That's such a shame. I'm so disappointed. And with that, I'm Mary Jo Matta. And I'm a disappointing Blake Montgomery. We'll see you next week. This is the Ed Surge Podcast. 